Okay, so today we're doing two for the price of one. I'm going to try and squeeze in two core ideas which are related. And one is explanations explained. So this is a meta view of what is actually happening when someone explains something to you. We'll look at some examples and we'll go through the mechanics, if not entirely systematically, then at least far enough to have a simple picture, a working definition. So that's explanations explained. We'll get into that in just a moment. And then the other one is worldviews for sale or worldview for sale. And this is essentially the climate that we're in right now. This is the information sphere. This is a way of navigating the explanations that come to you. And this is critical to understand. And there's no way around not understanding it. If you don't understand this, if you don't see this, then you're essentially trapped by your own explanation. You're trapped by your own understanding of the world, your own way of weaving a story, a narrative, a dialogue in your mind. You're trapped in that as however way, whichever way it stems from, your experiences, your perception, your life circumstances, your relationships, and all the rest of it. So, let's really just take a small assessment, a simple, small, plain assessment of what's currently going on in the informational sphere, in the domain of ideas, in the domain of public conversation, And essentially, what happens is there's a whole bunch of people standing around on their soapboxes and all they ever really do, all we, all of us ever really do is stand up and explain how things are. We say, this is what I think. This is what I believe. This is what I see as working in the world. This is my outlook. Now, of course, from that, there are a number of variations because a lot of the time it doesn't come from a personal me, my, self, I sort of assertion of belief. A lot of the time it is in reference to some other thing, right? So often it is, well, This is what science says. This is what human knowledge says. This is what history says. This is what the research says. This is what the institute says. And really, we can distinguish these two things, right? Whether it's a personal truth or belief or view that someone is expounding, and whether it is a scientific belief or a scientific view that someone is espouting. And that's an important distinction. And you could even say, well, (laughs) a lot of the time these two things get very much confused. And on both camps, they love to demonize each other, right? They love to say, well, that's not scientific, or that's just your personal opinion, and so on and so for the rest of it. But really, either of these two sides doesn't matter. Whether it's scientific or personal or something else is irrelevant to the fact, to the point that you're listening to someone talk and you're taking that in. Now, there are important distinctions to make about the quality of this sort of expouting of worldview. And the real fundamental 
thing to look out for, or the thing that is going to really define how you navigate this clearly and effectively is the category or the tier of worldviews that will essentially say, you need to work it out for yourself. And this is a very broad, very fundamental difference. We can really divide all worldviews, all knowledge, into these two tiers, these two levels, these two major camps. On the one camp, we have the worldviews, the beliefs that assert themselves. They assert themselves as truth. They assert themselves as hard and fast facts. They are real. And they're convincing. They're reliable. They're helpful. They can stand up to scrutiny. They can win the debates. They can cause a real effect in the world. And by so many measures, they are true. They are real. They are solid. They are the laws of the cosmos, the laws of reality, the final truth. And that one camp is very convincing. That solid, true, real, hard and fast worldview, if you can find it, feels very reliable. There's something in that that is like, ah, yes, I finally figured it out. Right? You can have a sense of, ah, that makes sense. That is logical. Logic comes into this. All rationality comes into this. It is rational because you've been able to follow it along cognitively. And you've been able to have it fit in with your experiences and your knowledge and your internal dialogue. But this whole camp, this whole level of what we might call, well, how are we going to label this? What are we going to do to sort of summarize this camp? It's the, it's the, it's the camp of believing that truth is there. It's the camp of believing that truth is a solid thing that can be found. I sort of want to call it dogma. I want to sort of call it solid. Maybe solid is the best thing to call it because it's not exactly dogma, right? We're sort of putting dogma and traditionalism in next to rationality, which is actually something that's changing and flowing, right? Rationality is not dogma in the same traditional sense as, well, traditionalism or closed values or closed belief systems. Rationality is not a belief system in the same way that a mythological belief system is. These are different things. But for today, we're actually putting those things together because rationality is solid. Rationality is on a totally different level, in a different way, a kind of dogma. So let's call this camp the solid camp. This is the camp that you're in when you get a sense that something is right, something is true, something is real, something is solid. If someone gives you an idea that works, then that's a solid idea. If someone gives you an explanation which fits with what your understanding is, then that's a solid idea. If someone gives you a concept which makes sense and you can follow the mechanics of, then that's a solid concept. So all of this first camp, let's call it the solid camp. This is the solid way of thinking. And that includes rationality and logic and science, as well as 
traditional values, dogma, mythology, and what we might call those those supposedly lower forms of viewing the world. And I put that in quotations because really there's there's a whole argument there to <laughs> to be made that well actually some of the earlier worldviews are superior in ways to the later worldviews. But I think that's clear now. We've got this solid worldview. So that's the first major camp. What's the second major camp? What is the other side of this? What is the second tier? What do we do to contrast all this? Well, this second camp is mysticism. It's not solid. It's ethereal. You can't pin it down. And it's basically opposite to the solid camp, right? Everything that is solid is in contrast to everything that is not solid, whether it's gassy or liquidy or even gooey. Maybe gooey is one way of looking at it, but gooey... But gooey is almost too much like something solid <laughs> to be <laughs> opposite to solid. And if you really work your way through the world views that are on sale, that are discussed, that come your way, then you really are discovering that there's no way around arriving at mysticism. And the difference is that there are worldviews that are aware of this. There are worldviews that know they can't be solid. They themselves know, if we could turn them into a kind of antagonist, they know they don't have real answers. They don't have reliable answers. They don't have logical answers. From these worldviews, you will get a concept that doesn't make sense. You'll get a concept that doesn't fit in, and you can't follow the mechanics. You'll get a line of logical reasoning which seems unfounded, which doesn't fit neatly into itself. You'll get beliefs that don't seem to work. You'll get ideas that don't seem to affect the world. You'll get ideas that don't seem to really be able to change things in reality from where you're at with your perspective. And one of the things that this mystical tier or this sort of gassy list of worldviews will always say is that, well, we don't have the answers. We can't give you something that you can rely on. We can't assert an idea. We can't give you a mode of operating that will at least get you somewhere. It's almost like You're bound to be (laughs) brought into chaos, into confusion, into a kind of insanity. And the thing to understand is that actually the more you become nested in this mystical tier, the more you sort of see the limits of solid worldviews, the less you can assert yourself the less real your ideas seem. And in fact, the less you can say in so many ways. So much of what's successful in the domain of ideas is simply successful because of how strongly it asserts itself and how solid it is and how tangible it is. Another correlation might be the difference between gross and subtle. 
the movies that are successful are really obvious. The plot line is very simple. The motivations of the characters, the emotional responses of the characters, they're very obvious. You can watch the screen of the movie and you can see, ah, oh, that person is so sad because of what happened, right? It's very obvious. It's gross. Whereas a subtle movie, which has a complex character of, oh, what are they really thinking? Why is it they had that reaction? Why are they doing these things? What are their motivations, right? That's much more subtle. It's much more deep. That's going to be a less popular movie. And this is the same in the world of ideas. This is the same in the world of outlook. How the world is. If we answer this question, well, how does the world work? What's going on in this world? What is life? We ask any of these questions. The answer that's going to come, that's going to be most popular, is like the gross popular movie where the character has a very obvious emotional response. And the subtle answers to these questions, or the mystical answers, well, they're going to be much more reserved. They're going to be a lot more quiet. They're going to come to the point where, actually, there's no word at all that can describe it. There needs to be a different way to communicate it. And that different way won't be via a very sort of intellectual, loud-speaking, assertive voice. This kind of talking and really pushing the point and really trying to have lots of evidence and reasoning and really being strong, right? This is, this is a solid way of thinking. This is a solid worldview. And the mystical worldviews are things that are less solid, are a lot more soft. They're a lot more subtle. They're not going to encroach upon you. They're not going to force themselves on you. They're not going to argue with you. They're not going to try and convince you. Right? We say, okay, let's look at this phrase, worldviews for sale. Well, if it wasn't worldviews, what if it was apples? What would it be like? Right? A lot of what we have in the world of ideas is a man by the side of the road with his apple trays and you walk past and he and he comes up to you and he says, fresh apples, get them while you can. Look at this. Look at the price. Look at how great it is. And he's sort of, he's sort of putting it in your face, right? Smell this apple. How much do you want? Only $1.99 per kilogram. Something like this, right? He's trying to sell his apples. This is the solid worldview. This is solid ideas. This is solid perspective for sale. Now, the equivalent mystical side of that, the equivalent gas sort of to stick with the solid gas analogy would be that, well, he's got some apples, but he might not even have a sign saying that they're for sale. He might not even be on the beaten path. He's not even on the main road. And in fact, you might have to actually press him. You, you will have to convince him to sell you the apples. Just to sell them, right? Let alone something to do with price or amount, right? And in so many ways... 
he's not going to sell you something. He's not trying to give you an idea, right? So the equivalent of outlook for sale or worldview for sale is that the mystic isn't trying to sell you an idea. The mystic isn't trying to give you a way of thinking which would be the same as yours or his or vice versa, right? It's not like, it's almost like the solid worldview for sale assumes that we are computers and the way we operate is from our software and we just needed to download the right software and if we all had the right software, then that would be fine. Things will work. We just need to find the right software. We find the right ideas, then society will work. But the mystical tier of worldviews has no interest in that. They're not trying to download any software onto you. They're actually trying to get rid of your software entirely, completely. They'll say, don't think like me. Don't follow me. Don't copy my ideas. Think of your own ideas. Figure it out for yourself. That's really how you summarize this mystical tier of worldviews. Figure it out for yourself. Now, there's a funny catch that comes in here, which is that in order to figure it out for yourself, one of the ways you do that is by actually adopting multiple worldviews. This is the path of knowledge. And if you can do this consciously, then it can be very effective, right? You can figure this out very quickly. It doesn't take much. It's really not hard. And what you do is you, okay, listen and you take in a new set of software. And then you listen and you take in, okay, another set of software. Okay, new and you're getting all these programs. You're getting programmed and programmed. And you're doing it consciously. So you're seeing what's coming in, what's going out, what the effect is, what the mechanics are. How you feel about it. Sensation, perception, mind, emotion. And all the rest of it. And you get to this point where you see this is just another software. This is just another idea. This is just another perspective. This is just another point of view which is coming from a single point within a massive network. And really, in so many ways, the, the mystic is concerned with deprogramming your software. They are concerned with actually undoing it. And there is this thing, there is this, it seems like it's almost innate... There is this thing of us wanting to have an explanation. We somehow want to have a worldview which is ready-made. There is something very much appealing in an explanation which explains the big things. And you might even say, well, how much do we need that? Why is it that we need things to be explained? And how badly do you really want it? Because part of the <laughs> another, another sort of mystic's shtick is... Well, you want to know the truth, but how badly do you want to know the truth? You want to hear me explain something to you. You want to adopt my worldview. And how badly do you really want it? How open are you really? How far are you going to give up your current view as a sacrifice for something greater, for something better? How open-minded are you really? 
And of course, we could even make the distinction that, well, there, there is a difference between open-minded and closed-minded. Because most people don't have the wisdom to see, well, I should adopt a different perspective. They actually hear something that contradicts their ideas and they say, well, that, that's just not true. That's not scientific. That's not logical. It's not rational. And any other number of excuses. So that's a little bit about worldviews for sale. And I think if you use this difference of solid truth, which would be truth without a capital T, lowercase t, and mystical truth or mystical worldview, and you use that by seeing, okay, how do I distinguish between the different ideas, concepts, explanations that people are giving to me, then, well, you can make way. You can actually see more clearly. And you can come to that better state. So, now let's take a look at, well, what does this mean, explanations explained? What does it really mean if we go into the mechanics of an explanation. What does it mean for someone to explain something to you? And for me, what comes to mind is we have this crossover between us and we're all wanting to get towards more experience, more knowledge, more aliveness, whatever that means. And really the propellants and the things of the the motivational side are irrelevant, right? It's almost like saying, well, what's what's propelling the universe? What's propelling progress? What's propelling evolution or anything like that? It doesn't doesn't really matter. It's just that well, we're in this situation. And for whatever reason, I have something that needs to be imparted to you. So let's make this more solid. Let's make this more <laughs> let's make this more tangible. <laughs> Say you're an apprentice mechanic. Now, you turn up on your first day in your apprenticeship and the master mechanic is there and he's going to start explaining things to you. And he's going to say, "Well, this is what this instrument is called. This is what this object is called." This is what this part is called. This is what this is called. And he's going to give you labels. And then he's going to say, well, these things go together like this. And we call that this. This is an epiphenomenon kind of explanation. This is called combustion or a Cadillac converter. Or exhaust propulsion or I don't know any terms for the mechanics of building a car, but there's going to be, beyond just the labels, a a behavior between the objects. And then from that, there's going to be a principle, right? When certain things are overheated, then you need to have some sort of response to that. And those principles will apply to multiple parts. And really, these, these levels of, you know, labels to actions to principles and concepts and symbols, well, this is just a map of how human cognition develops and works. And we can look at that in life through the developmental psychologists like Piaget and Rogers and Byrne and all the rest of them. And what he's doing, what the mechanic is doing is he's saying words Right? All he's doing with the apprentice is moving his mouth and making a sound. And as he's doing this, he's also picking up things in the environment and they're interacting with the objects. So you learn to become a mechanic 
through the explanations and through the experience, the hands-on practical experience. Now, from this, there are a certain number of assumptions, right? There's a certain level of shared understanding. If you turn up to be a mechanic, they don't first say, well, do you speak English? Do you know what a chair is? Do you know what a... Do you know what water is? And if you're an apprentice and you turn around and you say, well, what do you exactly mean by the word is? <laughs> The master mechanic might turn around and say, well, you need to go and enroll in a course in epistemology or philosophy <laughs> for that sort of question. Right? If you get to a certain point where the mechanic is trying to explain what a hammer is or what water means, and they're going to eventually say, well, you, you can't do this. There's a basic understanding that needs to be at a certain level. And it's one thing to go and be a mechanic. It's one thing to learn how cars work. It's a totally different thing to say, well, okay, how does this apply to life? How does this apply to a worldview? And in some ways, well, it becomes very abstract. It becomes very much like a high philosophy. It becomes, well, it becomes mystical. Right? Because the things we are explaining don't necessarily correlate between physical objects like the combustion engine and the, the water and the petrol. Because we can say, well, how do two ideas relate to each other? How do concepts relate to each other? How do theories relate to each other? What are the principles and mechanisms of Human thought in the most broadest sense. What is consciousness? What does it mean? What is truth? What is beauty? Right? All of this is very ethereal. All of this is very nebulous. And yet, in another way, it is actually very simple because it's still experience and it's still a person with their mouth making sounds. And there's still a level of shared understanding, right? There's, a, there's an amount of understanding that you have with me right now. There's an amount that you can follow along with this. Now, one of the interesting things about explanations is that exact window. Because if you have an amount where I'm not getting any of it, I don't understand anything you're saying, then eventually you'll turn off. And if you have an amount where it's like, okay, I've heard all this before. This is perfectly normal to me. You're explaining nothing new to me. Then you'll also turn off. And you could even say, well, there's a maturity in knowing that degree between too complicated and not interesting enough. And really, if you're open, you should be able to actually have the wisdom to see everything has its own truth. Everything has its own validity in its explanation. And you don't want to turn off. And when you can't follow along, then you really do want to follow along, right? This whole thing of the degree by which you should pay attention, that is a mechanism within you that actually needs to be dissolved and broken. That's actually a, a, a level or a kind of mechanism of closed-mindedness. And really, just to have someone make sounds with their mouth and to put labels to, to things and to point out mechanisms and to see how things work and to just have them follow along and to just have it happen as a kind of babble, right? A kind of chit-chat, a kind of, what's the word, jargon, right? If you just listen to the mechanic talk jargon, then eventually you pick it up, 
right? The apprentice might hear a word that they've never heard before from the mechanic master. And the first time they hear it, they, they don't really want to ask, you know, it's my first day, I don't want to be so dumb. But then he hears it again, and then he sees it again, and then he's putting it together, right? And then six months' time, he's using the mechanic apprentice, he's actually using that word. And he can even remember, ah, I remember when I didn't even know what that was, I'm learning something. And for some reason, there is a great value in listening to someone explain the world. For some reason, it's big money. It's a big market. For someone to just sit around and put labels to things and concepts to things and point out mechanisms and to see this is how the world works. And it's valuable, really, only to people who actually see worldviews for sale as a good thing. They're in the market for worldviews. They're in a solid way of thinking, a solid way of functioning in the world. Here's another way of looking at it. What is an explanation worth? What's it worth to you? Now, on one level, an explanation is so useful. It is amazingly useful, particularly when you're talking about life and the world and existential things. It's so valuable. When you have that, you would say something about someone which is along the lines of, Wow, that person has really opened me to new ideas. Wow, that person has really changed the way I think. Wow, listening to that person talk has really given me a great view of how this beautiful world is. And that feeling, that that joy, that gratitude, that is very important. That is a leg of your journey. That is a part of the process. So on one level, an explanation, an existential explanation is very valuable. It's very important. And you can be filled with so much gratitude for having found it. Because, of course, it is hard to find a good explanation, right? There's plenty of, bla- there's plenty of bad explanations. Just like there are people selling bad apples, But then as we move on and you sort of grow through this, you see that an explanation isn't actually worth anything to you. In a whole different way, explanations are worth nothing. Great, you've explained the universe. So what? Like, do you want me to just be walking around with this kind of thought pattern? You want me to have a thought pattern that repeats itself every now and then? How is that worth something? How is that a solution to the complexity of human mind? How is that a vibrant and alive way of living? Great, you've explained the universe. So what? Great, you've explained the ultimate nature of reality and life and infinity and God and eternity and all the rest of it and you, yourself and everyone in the collective and this cosmos. So what? Now what? Then what do we do? And of course, there is a difference between saying, okay, so what? As in, it's not worth anything and I'm going to tune out. And, well, actually, I can appreciate your worldview. I can hear it as a form of truth. And here we really get to the issue, which is how 
is what's going into your mind affecting you. Because it can be that someone explains something that goes into your mind and you appreciate it. You enjoy it as if it was poetry, as if it was a song that someone was singing. And yet it doesn't affect you in that it then doesn't become this thing that you work from, this thing that you behave from. And hearing someone's explanation as a song or a poem, that is very different to hearing someone's explanation, taking it as an idea, adopting it as a belief, and then orienting your life around it, and making life choices, and doing behaviours, and setting your trajectory in relation to that idea. That's literally mind control, right? That is what mind control is. It's working under someone else's idea. Now, in the future, what we're going to have is not just ideas going from one person to another via movements with the mouth and sounds with the voice box, but we're going to have also a visual component, an emotional component. A phenomenological component, right? It won't be me trying to get neural networks inside your mind be similar to the way they are for mine with just the sounds that I'm making with my mouth, but I'm actually going to be able to copy and paste, right? I can actually make a, a some sort of thing that is going to be able to perfectly copy my neural shape, my cognitive brain or whatever you want to say, and I'm, it's just me like copy-paste. And in a sense, that's what a movie is, right? A movie isn't just dialogue, it's also visual, it's also emotional, it's also music. It's almost like, instead of, let's say, instead of me standing here and giving a lecture on a soapbox... To give you an idea, instead of doing that, I actually make a whole movie. And it's a not just a 2D movie, but a, a virtual reality movie. Well, then you're going to have problems with mind control. Then that puts mind control and ideology into a whole nother realm of problems. And in a sense, we already have this, right? I mean, I'm talking on a camera now. So if you're watching me on the camera, you're you're getting sort of visual cues, which is more than just if you're listening to me on the podcast, which is just my voice, right? So to a degree, we already have this. But in the future, it's going to be like you are in the movie and you are fully immersed. And it overtakes all of you. It's not just dialogue and sound and visual, but it's also perception and sensation and bodily sensation and emotion and feeling and air pressure, heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory system, right? It's going to be a whole thing. And from that, well, you're going to need to be able to see the differences because the richness is that you can step into someone else's movie. You can watch that movie and be really immersed in it, and then step out of that movie, and then go into someone else's. Right? The difference would be, if we use this movie analogy, that we have this cinema, and at 7 o'clock, the new action movie is playing. At 9 o'clock, the romantic comedy is playing. At midnight, the science fiction fantasy is playing. And you can go to all three of them. You go to the first one, you go to the second one, you go to the third one, and then you come out at 2 a.m. and you think, whoa, wow, I've had so much experience. I've discovered so much about people's lives. 
And that is a rich thing. That is an amazing thing. We're going to have human connection. When it gets to that, there will be human connection on a level that no one has ever known. And yet, the opposite of this is, well, you go to one movie and then you stay in that movie and you're stuck in that movie and you are completely convinced that you are a character in that movie. And it's not even your movie. It's not even your life. And if someone was to come along and say, hey, you're inside a movie right now, you need to come out and see the real world, you would demonize them. You would say, get away from me. Don't disrupt my life. What you're saying is not truth. Show me your evidence. (laughs) You're being unscientific. (laughs) Right? And this difference of, well, can you go in and out of movies? and experience different worldviews, this is exactly the same as, well, what ideas can you go in and out of? What concepts can you go in and out of? And you really do still need to be able to actually take something as a serious concept, right? You need to be able to take something seriously. You need to have the skill of actually listening and realizing the implications. Like if if this idea is real, you're going to have to change everything. And it's quite scary. You become hopeful because of the potentiality. You become nervous. You have a sense of responsibility. Like, you know, like it suddenly becomes this very vast, dramatic, big thing, right? Life, life becomes intense. Life becomes really real. And yet at the same time, you still need to have the idea of, ah, that's just an idea. You need to have the attitude of being grounded, of just saying, I can let this pass. I can let this go. I can allow this to move through me and out of me. And I can forget all about it. Forget the whole thing. I haven't even thought about it. I don't even know what we're talking about right now. It's gone. So, the final irony is that this is a worldview. What I'm giving to you right now is a worldview. And that irony really does just summarize the paradox of the whole thing. If we were to put this into a comic book strip, then it would be like, There's two guys sitting in a bar. And one guy turns to the other and he says, So, what do you think about the state of the world? And then the other guy turns to the other and he says, Ah, yes, I do think about the state of the world. That's what I think. Now, from there, it's like, well, you haven't, you haven't said anything, right? There's nothing in that. It's literally like you've said nothing, but you have said words. <laughs> and yet, on another level, that is very profound. That is the, the most truthful, down-to-earth, real sort of answer to that question. Like, how would I answer it? What is your worldview? I would say, my worldview is that we need to transcend out of worldviews. We need to not have a worldview. That is my worldview. And you say, well, how do you do that? And it's like, well, by having worldviews, <laughs> by adopting worldviews, 
by going to the marketplace of ideas and buying as much as you can. Taking on as many concepts and ideas as you can. Now, of course, as I said before, this is the world of, this is the path of knowledge. And there are many paths. We've spoken about those in the past. But this is the way. This is the way of worldviews. The way of explanations. So, that's a little bit about worldviews for sale and explanations explained. And, oh, someone's can hear someone. I don't know if you can hear that, but someone started up the lawnmower. So, I think I should finish up this episode. Next episode, we're actually going to start a new series. And this series, most likely, most probably, if all goes to plan, will be on Glimpses of a Golden Childhood, which is a book by Osho. And that book will be a great illustration of what it means to live a life without a worldview, without ideas, without explanations. Right? This will be a perfect analogy or a sort of story or metaphor. So tune in for that. Make sure you subscribe and do leave me a comment. I always like to hear that someone's listened to this. I don't know if anyone's listening unless someone's left me a comment. And tune in for the next series. It'll be a multi-part series on glimpses of a golden childhood, a commentary. So, thanks very much. Hope you're having a good day. We'll be back soon with more. And that's all I have to say for now.